This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. This is July. Today's date, to be precise, is July the 16th. And for the past several weeks, we have been enjoying the graduation and promotion of fourth-year medical students to surgical interns and a variety of interns around the country and around the world have basically come into our intensive care units. And one of the things that make me most apprehensive about this time of year is the actual teaching of invasive procedures uh, to our new, new interns. It's one thing to be making rounds in intensive care units and teaching people about ventilators and sepsis, acid-based statuses, but the actual teaching of um, manual procedures is extraordinarily difficult, uh, in, in my opinion. And I say this as a, a, an educator in surgery. I often find it easier to teach a resident um, how to do a bowel anastomosis or something like an appendectomy or a surgical procedure than actually teaching them how to do a central line. Because a lot of times when teaching somebody to do a central line, I really can't see the tip of the catheter, um, certainly in years past prior to the use of ultrasound, and its relationship to arterial structures or the apex of the lung. So for that reason, um, we're going to talk about today the thing that causes me the, the greatest amount of apprehension in the intensive care unit, particularly in regards to education, and that's complications associated with central venous catheterization. I remember as a critical care fellow at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, going to surgical M&M and listening to residents present complications from a central venous catheter. And the most common one that they would present was typically a pneumothorax. And Dr. George Sheldon was the chairman of surgery then. And he would predictably have a series of questions that uh, regarded uh, the risk factors associated with the placement of a central venous catheter. And he was very clear about making sure that the residents knew what those risk factors were because, in my opinion, that if you knew what those risk factors were, you knew when the game was changing. You knew when the risk of the patient was being elevated. And you had to ask yourself a very mature question, and that is, should I pass this procedure up to a more experienced operator who might be able to decrease the risk to the patient? Uh, what are some of those risk factors? Well, the most obvious is inexperience. Um, there is a consistent relationship between a less experienced operator and the rate of complications. The one that Dr. Sheldon typically would, would cue on was the number of needle passes. And with the um, increased number of passes that a particular individual makes, there's an increased uh, likelihood that the patient's going to have a complication. And if, there's, if you're having to pass the needle more than two venipunctures or more than two passes, there is a six-fold increase with three or more passes of the needle. So once you go from two passes of the needle to three passes of the needle, you're going to see a six-fold increase in complications associated with that line insertion. Patients who have uh, uh, increased complications based on their, their body habitus. Somebody's got a, a BMI of greater than 30 or less than 20. Uh, patients had previous catheterizations. A patient who is profoundly dehydrated or hypovolemic. Those are going to increase your risk factors of having complications with central venous catheters. Coagulopathies, interesting enough, do not appear to increase the risk of percutaneous insertion. 
if appropriate, appropriate precautions are being taken, such as making sure that the patients, if they're thrombocytopenic, that you're increasing the platelet count to 50,000 or greater. Uh, if a patient has an elevated uh, prothrombin time or partial thromboplastin time, that you've given them FFP. Those measures can hopefully reduce the risk of complications in our coagulopathic patients. Peterson and colleagues um, asked the question whether anticoagulation increased the risk of internal jugular vein cannulation. This was published in Anesthesiology in 1991. And uh, in that paper, they even felt that heparinization did not appear to increase the risk of bleeding or hematoma during IJ insertion. Although coagulopathies are not a clear contraindication, the internal jugular or femoral vein uh, clearly is the best approach for central venous catheterization in a coagulopathic patient because the operator is able to apply direct pressure to those sites uh, if you run into a, a bleeding complication or a hematoma. Large catheter sizes, such as those used for dialysis, appear to influence the risk of vascular complications of insertion. Other types of large catheter sizes that uh, uh, result in increased uh, complications are some of the cordis introducers, or what we call MAC introducers, that may get put uh, in a circumstance where we desire large volume resuscitations, uh, such as you might see uh, with a, a burn or a trauma resuscitation. But as I've learned over the years, I've been well-educated by very wise individuals, and I'll go back to Dr. Sheldon's edict from our M&Ms from years ago, and that was unsuccessful insertion attempts. And unsuccessful insertion attempts are the strongest predictor of insertion complications. Overall rates of unsuccessful insertion attempts for IG, uh, excuse me, for IJ access have been reported at 12% and 12 to 20% for subclavian vein and internal jugular venous cannulation attempts in adults, as well as infants weighing less than 10 kilos. So if you're having problems passing that needle, uh, don't try potentially a third, fourth, and fifth time because you view it as a sign of weakness. View it as a sign of maturity, a sign of maturity that you recognize that you might be an inexperienced operator, coupling that with the fact that the science, the facts, the evidence shows that with increasing passing of that needle, that you're increasing the risk to your patient sixfold from developing a mechanical complication. Your priority is not your ego, but your priority is your safety of the patient. Let's focus now on what are some of the incidences of the complications of, of placing a central venous catheter. And depending on the particular study you're looking at, the actual complication rate is between 5 and 19%. One of the things that I found interesting in looking at the literature is that femoral catheterization actually has a higher incidence of mechanical complications than subclavian and IJ access. Uh, and that's not something I think that most people would be appreciative. And, and you may give pushback on that. So let's quote you the actual literature. Uh, Merrer and colleagues wrote a paper called Complications of Femoral and Subclavian Venous Catheterization in Critically Ill Patients, a Randomized Control Trial. That was published in Journal of the American Medical Association in 2001, Volume 286, pages 700 to 707. And then there's also a uh, paper from uh, Saram and colleagues, retroperitoneal hematoma following femoral catheterization, a serious and often fatal complications in American Surgeon 1993, volume 59, pages 94 to 98. So first of all, recognizing that femoral catheterization is, has a higher complication rate than we typically have given credit for. Now, let's change our scenario a little bit and think about what happens commonly in trauma bays. A patient comes in, they uh, 
are, are potentially in shock. Why would they need a central line in a hurry? Um, uh, may be a beast, may not be a beast. And typically what happens is that the people will slam a eight and a half cortis inducer into their femoral vein. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, risk factors that we've talked about in regards to complications from central venous catheter. We've commented that the literature will show that femoral venous catheter is associated with a high rate of mechanical complications. We're not talking yet about um, um, uh, infectious complications. We will go on to talk about that emergency central venous catheters are associated with an increased rate of potential complications. And we've already talked about that patients um, who are hypovolemic uh, or hypotensive or dehydrated will have a higher rate of mechanical complications than um, patients who aren't. Then we can get into the physics of why you need a central line in a hypovolemic patient. And we will, and we have in other podcasts, particularly when we've talked about IV access, maybe in the pharmacology podcast, but applying what's called Pousset's Law. So let's just wrap that up and put that off to the side, uh, because that's one of the things that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense when I see done on a routine basis. Now, internal jugular vein uh, line insertion certainly does have associated complications with it and can can also have uh, higher uh, complication rates of of, of certain complications, particularly arterial injuries, in both elective and emergency situations. Uh, Prospective comparative studies suggest that during cardiac arrest, the catheterization success rate can be higher for subclavian vein uh, than for femoral venous access which to me is intriguing because, again, uh, most of the conventional wisdom and certainly what I was trained in most of my residency was that we would be putting uh, central lines in the groin uh, during a cardiac arrest situation, uh, particularly during compressions and not going uh, through the subclavian vein. But Emmerman and colleagues in Annals of Emergency Medicine 1990 published an article called A Prospective Study of Femoral Venous Versus Subclavian Vein Catheterization During Cardiac Arrest. And that was uh, their findings. Perhaps one of the uh, most significant uh, introductions of, of safety in the insertion of central venous catheters is be the use of ultrasound-assisted insertion. And I'll tell you, when I was a fellow, our first sonicides were, were certainly not sophisticated at all, uh, and we were using them back uh, in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, but the use of ultrasound really goes back all the way to 1978, and the body of literature supporting the use of ultrasound-assisted insertion of central venous catheters continues to expand at a rather rapid rate. Um, and there's clearly a significant amount of evidence that demonstrates that the use of ultrasound is perhaps the safest method to prevent or decrease overall and specific complications uh, of insertions. Reports of advantage of ultrasonography uh, over the anatomic landmark support the funding of using it and and risk reduction uh, and improved cannulation success, Um, certainly for internal jugular, but it's also been, uh, its uh, use has been suggested for use of femoral vein and subclavian vein access as well. But again, most of the literature we have is for use of insertion of IJ um, um, central venous catheters. The most common complication of insertion of um, subclavian venous catheters and IG catheters, and perhaps the one that I think the residents fear the most, is the creation of a pneumothorax. Certainly the most common represents about 30% of all mechanical adverse events of inserting a um, central venous catheter. 
The incidence of pneumothorax is reported to be between 0 and 6.6%, and the higher um, the incidence, when, again, as we mentioned, the higher the number of, of needle passes, as well as inserting these catheters under emergency circumstances. Um, furthermore, we see increased rate of pneumothorax when we're inserting the large catheters, uh, typically those that are used for dialysis. There's a 1 to 1.5% incidence is more consistently reported. Uh, certainly that's what we probably report to patients. Uh, most of the evidence points towards a higher incidence of pneumothorax when the subclavian vein is catheterized as compared to the IJ, but it is a um, uh, misunderstanding it to say the least that IJ is uh, perhaps a safer or it is not likely to get a pneumothorax putting an IJ catheter in. When educating or obtaining consent for an IJ, you certainly still have to let patients and families know that a pneumothorax is still a, a uh, potential complication of an internal jugular central venous catheter. In fact, Miller um, and colleagues reported back in American Journal of Surgery in 1999 in an article titled Reevaluation of Radiographically Detectable Complications of Percutaneous Venous Access Lines. Uh, they reported in that study that subclavian vein catheterization uh, had occasionally been linked to a lower incidence of pneumothorax than IJ access. Those of us who have been around the block for more than a few years, we certainly have seen patients develop delayed pneumothoraces. Typically what happens is you end up putting a central venous catheter in today on the left side, uh, and then tomorrow on a routine chest x-ray or a patient becomes symptomatic, you get a um, uh, x-ray and there's a pneumothorax there when there wasn't a pneumothorax on the post-insertion film. Well, that's a delayed pneumothorax. Uh, we will typically hem and haul and say, well, when we put it in, it's totally unrelated. That's not intellectually honest. It's not credible. Um, you have a delayed pneumothorax and it's reported to occur at 0.5 to 4% of the insertions. Um, uh, symptoms will typically appear within six hours, but not in all patients, which calls for the need to exercise caution and, and, and be aware that this can potentially occur. Uh, some people are, are very facile with ultrasound, and there's an increasing body of evidence and, and certainly an interest that using bedside ultrasound to detect uh, pneumothoraces. So, you know, doing a bedside ultrasound to uh, allow one to diagnose a pneumothorax may be immediately available in intensive care units where that equipment and technology is available. And we're seeing an increase in degree of sensitivity and accuracy um, in ultrasound detecting pneumothorax uh, rather than supine films. Uh, another potential problem that we have when we insert catheters is that the catheter isn't where we want it or malpositioning. How this could be problematic is when you think about why we're putting central venous catheters in. There are some people who are, um, do not like to use high-dose vasopressors through a peripheral vein, and that is reasonably sound judgment because if a peripheral vein becomes uh, malpositioned, a peripheral IV becomes malpositioned during the infusion of something like levofed or epinephrine or vasopressin, and you infiltrate those medications, you'll see pretty significant uh, soft tissue necrosis. Central venous catheter um, particularly long-term uh, dwelling central venous catheters, um, may be delivering uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. And again, you will see a profound soft tissue necrosis if the catheter becomes malpositioned. Furthermore, a malpositioning of the, the catheter can cause perforation of the vein uh, and, and potential problems with that and venous thrombosis as well. 
I was up in our intensive care unit the other day, and, and one of my partners, Dr. Selby, uh, was talking to the residents about where the tip of the catheter should be and where we've allowed them to be in the past and perhaps where we need to allow them to be in the present. And Dr. Selby is a, a distinguished professor here at Vanderbilt. Uh, he's an intensivist. He's a, a cardiac surgeon. Uh, and he's also a, a, an attorney as well as being a, a physician. And in the past, cons- uh, a large number of catheters were left within the right atrium. But today, the literature uh, really does not support this practice as well as what the Food and Drug Administration says where these catheters should be because by leaving these catheters in the right atrium, there's an increased risk of perforation of the right atrium. Now, the medical community is not all on the same sheet of music about this. There are many practitioners who feel that it is totally safe uh, to leave a, a catheter in the right atrium. Uh, you'll notice a lot of times in pediatric surgery, they will determine the length of the catheter depending a lot on the duration that that catheter uh, is going to be indwelling based on the growth of the child because if they put the catheter in perfectly at the uh, atrial junction and the child undergoes a growth spurt, that catheter is certainly going to migrate more proximally. And in those situations, pediatric surgeons may elect to put the catheter in more deep. In today's current practice, we really consider a catheter malpositioned, uh, but we recognize that the angle of incidence of a central venous catheter tip against the wall of a vessel of greater than 40 degrees carries an increased risk of perforation. What does this mean? Well, um, if the the angle of that tip of that catheter is greater than 40 degrees, there's a possibility that that tip of that catheter could cause perforation of that vessel. My residents heard me talk about how much I really hate left IJ catheters because you have to be careful about the length of that left IJ catheter because as it comes to the anomenate or it comes to the, the superior vena cava, you need to make sure that that catheter clearly bends because if that tip is at an angle of potentially 90 degrees or as the literature suggests, greater than 40 degrees, that constant banging to that tip on the side well, that vessel can create a problem with, problem with perforation of that vessel. So at present, the literature suggests that that angle uh, of that tip in relationship to the blood vessel that it's in should be less than 40 degrees. So as a general rule, to avoid the tip from abutting against the wall of the vein at an inappropriate angle, it, you really it's best to approach left-sided insertions with a 20-centimeter catheter um, and right-sided insertions with a 16-centimeter catheter or, or have that be where you're having the, the length of the catheter at the skin site when you're inserting these subclavian uh, venous catheters. One can certainly try to eyeball what the appropriate length of the catheter should be um, and some have argued that if you take a one-third of the distance between the manubrium, um, you know, the, what's the angle of Lewis, um, you know, uh, and the xiphoid, that's really about where the atrial junction could be expected uh, and basically try to uh, figure out where um, you should place your catheter based on, on that potential landmark. When you're looking at the x-ray, determining where your catheter tip is uh, sometimes is also very difficult as well because, remember, when we're looking at x-rays, we're really looking at shadows, and there's some amplification that goes on as well. Some authors have, article, uh, have argued that the final resting point of the catheter to make sure that you're above the atrial cable junction is determined that uh, the final tip of the catheter should be really uh, below the level of the carina. Um, there's been um, a paper by Aslami and colleagues which uh, demonstrated that convincingly that the right tracheobronchial angle is the most reliable landmark to assure that the catheter tip is at least 2.9 centimeters above the pericardial reflection. Pericardial reflection. 
and, and this is true even if the, when you look at the x-ray, it looks like the catheter tip uh, is within the cardiac silhouette. Again, because some of that is going to be related to amplification or, or shadow uh, magnification uh, from the x-ray. But if you're at that, uh, that, that angle of the tracheobronchial angle, you're probably going to be okay. Similarly, 20% of the catheter tips confirmed to be in the atrial cable junction by TE are still visualized in the mid portion of the right atrium on supine chest x-rays. So again, um, 20% of, of x-rays that say that you're in the right atrium, that when you're confirming it by TEE, which we're not going to be putting TEEs down people to evaluate catheter placement, that in 20% of the cases, the catheter actually wasn't in the right atrium. It was actually in the atrial cable junction. So again, using some of those radiographic landmarks and, and recognizing that there is amplification on the x-ray. Other potential heart-stopping complications, or at least certainly heart-stopping complications in regards to the faculty are arterial injury or vascular injuries. Um, and uh, vascular injuries occur more commonly with IJ and, and femoral accesses than with subclavian. Um, even though it can be self-limiting, a puncture of a carotid artery in IJ catheters averages about 6%. In prospective uh, studies, that's certainly something to keep one uh, pretty alarmed about. Um, about 40% of carotid uh, punctures are associated with a hematoma. And insertion of subclavian vein uh, central lines can cause hemothorax, which is reported about 1% of uh, subclavian vein central catheterization. Other potential complications that we can see with insertion of uh, these central lines are uh, the development of arrhythmias. It's fairly often, particularly if you're in the process of inserting a pulmonary artery catheter. And, and these can certainly uh, degrade in something like ventricular fibrillation and just uh, outright cardiac arrest. The incidence of the patient having cardiac ectopy during insertion of central line is really related to the depth of, of guide wire insertion. And if the guide wire is inserted to 25 centimeters um, um, or, say, 32 centimeters from an IJ site, the likelihood of having a cardiac arrhythmia is about 75% of the time. It's only a minority of patients that actually become symptomatic from the uh, arrhythmia, and in the vast majority of cases, the uh, arrhythmia is terminated by simply withdrawing uh, the guide wire, pulling the guide wire back. Uh, if you are in an intensive care unit and you have a... Um, Someone at the bedside, it is important to comment that when you're sitting there putting the guide wire in, to comment that a wire is in. Somebody keep an eye on the monitor, and if the patient starts having ectopy, it's important that that feedback occur. There's really no excuse that if you're in an intensive care unit and you're putting a central venous catheter in somebody and the wire is in too deep and they sit there having a 10 or 15 beat run of VTAC uh, because of a wire, that should be uh, recognized quickly and communicated effectively. A rare but interesting potential of complication is uh, inserting a guide wire in a patient who has an implanted uh, cardioverter device, and that can actually induce an arrhythmia and um, deliver a shock, which can actually deliver a shock to the operator, which is kind of a, a rare but kind of an interesting kind of thing to report. Chylothorax is another potential complication with insertion of central venous catheter as well as the development of chylopericardium. Um, and this simply occurs from direct damage to lymphatic ducts. Uh, the traditional thought is that the lymphatic ducts are injured during insertion of a left IJ or subclavian vein, and that causes damage to the uh, thoracic duct. Um, but they can also occur with right-sided approaches, uh, and um, uh, a right-sided uh, supraclavicular access has been uh, reported to have a 0.5% incidence of a lymphocutaneous fistula. 
using uh, ultrasound uh, assistance and insertion of a central venous catheter has no impact on this complication. And finally, perhaps the most feared complication for those of us teaching um, people how to put central lines in is embolization or loss of the guide wire. Uh, rare, reported to occur about twice in every, every several thousand catheterization. Guide wires can loop, they come in trapped, uh, they can stick inside catheters, they can knot, they can fracture, and they can embolize uh, and cause uh, acute arterial insufficiency. Uh, they've even been reported to embolize and go through uh, patent uh, foramen ovale, and if that were happened, that would be just absolutely the worst horrible day that I could potentially imagine. Um, the guide wires are typically J-shaped for a reason, and that is because they're going to be hitting the sides of vessel walls, and sometimes what will happen, and I've seen people try this, is that a wire will get bent, and what they'll do is they'll flip the wire around and use the straight portion of the wire. Not a good plan. Straight-tipped wires can cause perforation of vessels as well as perforation of the heart. So the moral of the story is, is if you pull back your wire and it's bent and looks pretty gnarly, don't spin it around and use a straight end. Get a new kit or get a new wire. That's the safest thing to do. Another potential wire complication that can occur in intensive care units um, is particularly associated with femoral venous catheterization. It's having the uh, guide wire get tangled up uh, in a uh, vena cava filter, and this could cause um, dislodgement or movement of the filter, uh, tearing of the vein, as well as fracture of the wire. That's what we're going to talk about today as far as insertion of central venous catheters. Uh, and I think um, in a future podcast, we're going to talk about some of the complications of central venous catheters with allowing them to dwell. And one of the things that uh, when I was at Chapel Hill, Dr. Meyer used to make us every day try to figure out how we can get rid of the poisons, which was his um, way of referring to our medications, as well as each day challenging us on why we needed each piece of plastic. And so in a future podcast, I'm going to try to bring up why we want to challenge ourselves each day about why we need particular pieces of plastic. I wanted to include some listener email, and I've got a lot of email from folks all around the world, and it's just absolutely great, and I do appreciate it. And people ask questions regarding the podcast we've done, and a lot of the, the questions are very insightful. And I think that if somebody has a particular question, that perhaps other of the listeners have it as well. And I received a question recently, and I won't embarrass anybody. This was just a really great question. It was, I'm a critical care nurse student, and I was wondering if you could help me with a scenario. I had an obese patient weighing about 100 kilos who was brought into the ED, intubated with a 5-0 endotracheal tube. Difficult to intubate, and the, uh, they can only put in a small endotracheal tube. We had a minute ventilation set at tidal volume of 500, respiratory rate of 12, PEEP was at 5, SIMV volume control. The peak pressure was 40. Patient was hemodynamically stable. Gas was normal except for a PCO2 of 55. They sedated the patient. The ET suction cleared. The patient was, the, the nurse uh, was talking about bringing the, they wanted to bring the PCO2 to normal range, but feel that the high PO, the PIP was due to the size of the tube. And if I can increase the respiratory rate, will I increase the flow, which will lead to a higher PIP? And the question is, does changing the IDE ratio help with decreasing the flow? If I increase the total volume, will that affect the PIP? And I'm going to mispronounce your name, and I'm, I apologize, uh, uh, Guada Bedoza. Um, but this is just a, I was really excited by this email because this is a critical care nurse student, and it's a very, very insightful um, understanding of a very 
complicated issue that I don't think many uh, critical care physicians understand. And this comes from the podcast we did on peak inflammatory pressure. You'll remember from the podcast, and if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to download it, that peak inflammatory pressure was an equation. And the equation was the volume, the tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax plus the resistance of the flow times the airway, the, the, the product the resistance of the airway times flow of gas. And you have someone here who has a very small endotracheal tube. And so that does what? That, in, that causes increased the resistance of the flow. You had somebody here who's 100 kilos, and what does that do? All of that weight, every time that you ventilate, you have to move that weight. And what does that do? That decreases your compliance of the lung and the thorax. Now, we used to talk a lot about barotrauma, and, and we, we still do talk a lot about barotrauma, but what we've learned is not so much barotrauma, but it's the volume trauma, is that we cause damage with high peak of story pressures because we over-distend a particular lung unit. We overdistend an alveolus. In the case that was presented here, that when you get to that PIP of 40, are you really overdistending that alveolus? And the answer is no, you're not. So in the short term, if the patient's PIP is 42 or 45, is their head going to explode and roll across the floor and catch on fire? No, you're probably not going to cause overdistension of normal alveoli because you have a very small uh, airway causing high resistance and you've got a very poorly compliant uh, thorax. Uh, one of my mentors, who was the, uh, a physician, an engineer, uh, who invented the first mechanical ventilator, is a guy named Forrest Bird. And Forrest Bird had a device, and when I... Uh, uh, Dr. Bird taught me that if you took somebody who had a 502 tube and you gave them a peak pressure of about um, 40, only about 50% of that peak pressure is actually getting reflected to the airway. And he had a device that actually measured that. But the question you bring up is, if I change the IDE ratios and decrease the flow of gas, will it drop the peak pressure? And the answer is Absolutely, yes, it will. And by, but by increasing the total volume, what are you going to do to the peak pressure? You'll actually raise it. So this is, I'm just really very tickled and very proud of you because what you're doing is you're recognizing that PIP is elevated. You're recognizing the components that make that PIP. And you're recognizing that there are many things on that ventilator that you can twist to bring that PIP down and up. And certainly by adjusting your IDE ratio is going to slow your flow of the gas down and by slowing the flow of the gas down you can actually get that tidal volume and do it at a lower peak incitatory pressure. Great question, right on base and demonstrating a lot of critical thought. You have been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Uh, I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. This podcast is uh, downloadable through iTunes by doing a round on a search on IC Rounds. I do have other podcasts. I encourage you to uh, download and listen to. One is called uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. I guarantee you that if you work in an ICU, you will certainly learn a lot. You don't need to be a pre-hospital uh, provider to uh, uh, to learn uh, some of the concepts that we're teaching on that pharmacology. Um, and I also have one for a pre-hospital trauma called PHTLS Podcast. We have a web presence as well. My, uh, my website is uh, burndoc.com. And uh, 
where we have a IC Rounds group on Facebook. I'm actually trying to also uh, get on Twitter. If you get on, or on Twitter, search Burn Doc, and uh, we're trying to make Twitter updates. And we actually may start doing some uh, audible tweets. Uh, some that's what they're calling it, but looking at the technology of that to try to increase uh, our presence and in, in education on the internet. If you enjoy the podcast and the price is right, the price is free. By all means, please leave a, a positive feedback on iTunes. It is very helpful to us. Have a great day. Thanks for downloading.